This morning's one of those days when I'm speaking both here and our other congregation, Ashley Road, so again, I'll be nipping out once I've finished speaking here. We are in the second of uh, a series we're doing called Faithful in Exile. This year, 2020, we're particularly thinking about the theme of being faithful, what that means, and uh, we're kicking off the year by looking at Uh, the Apostle Peter's first letter and how he writes to believers in what we now think of as Turkey and describes them as being in exile, even though they're living in their hometowns and their home cities, they're feeling as if they are somewhat in exile because their decision to follow Jesus has caused uh, friction and difficulties for them in their relationships with the people they work with and sometimes in marriages and other relationships. And Peter writes to encourage them about being faithful in Exile. And today we're going to be thinking about what it is, what it means to find salvation in exile. Salvation in exile. I'm going to read uh, from verse 3 through to verse 9 of 1 Peter. It should appear on the screens as well. Peter writes this Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come... So that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is an utterly epic passage. Uh, the Apostle Peter, as he begins this letter, bursts into this incredible description of praise. And really, in response to what Peter writes here, we should all get up and whoop and clap and dance because what he writes is so amazing. What Peter's doing here is diving deep into the claims and the substance of Christianity. He's saying this is what it is to follow Jesus. This is life. There's new life in Christ Jesus, and this is something to give great praise about. So this morning, what this morning is about is this, that if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian, I want us to see again the glory of our salvation, the glory of our salvation, and how the wonder, the mystery, the glory The beauty of our salvation outweighs any difficulties which we might face for our faith now. And if you're not a Christian, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, what I want you to see this morning is the offer of new life for you. And I'm going to give you an opportunity at some point this morning to respond to new life in Christ. Now, we need to respond to this. We need to respond to what Peter writes. All of us need to respond. Those of us who know Jesus already and those who don't, all of us should respond to what Peter writes here. There's no better, there's no more important news you can hear than what Peter describes in this passage. He talks about us having come into new life, about us being born again. Now, born again Christians are often mocked for being happy, clappy, but we should be happy and we should clap 
because of the things which Peter describes here. So let's think about why that is. First thing is that we have hope. We have hope. People are so fearful. We talked about this last week, the way that panic can easily spread in our society, especially through influences of social media. And it feels that so many people are living in a, a state almost of constant hypervigilance. And the believers that Peter is writing to, they have reasons for fearfulness. They have reasons for anxiety because their decision to follow Jesus is costing them. Now, Lots of us will know what constant anxiety, constant worry, constant fear feels like. It's that knot in the stomach. It's the oversensitivity to the actions and the words of others. It's that sense of looking over your shoulder, seeing what's coming up behind you. And the people that Peter is writing to had reason to feel that way because they were living in a hostile situation. They had reason to be anxious. They had reason to be fearful. They had reason to be worried, but Peter says to them, you've got living hope. You've got living hope. This is what you've been born into. And this hope, hope is a very biblical and a very powerful word. Let's think about some of the other places in the Bible which describe hope. In the Psalms, again and again, it says, put your hope in God. That's the refrain again and again in the Psalms, put your hope in God. God. What are you going to trust in? What are you going to rely in? Put your hope in God. He's the one who's trustworthy. He's the one who's reliable. He won't let you down. In 2 Corinthians, it says, on him, Jesus, we have set our hope. In Colossians 1, it says, Christ, this is an amazing claim, Christ in you, the hope of glory. If you put your trust in Jesus, if you set your hope in him, we have this hope in us of sharing in the glory of God. That's what Peter describes here. In Hebrews, it says we have this hope, this hope in Jesus as an anchor for the soul. There's something, hope holds us. It holds us firm. It locks us into the one who is firm and true and trustworthy. Hope is a powerful biblical word. But what really is hope? One description I found helpful of hope is that hoping is disciplined waiting. Hoping is disciplined waiting. And this means that hope is actually profoundly countercultural. It would have been countercultural for the believers that Peter writes to here, and it's countercultural for us because I think in our society, rather than disciplined waiting, actually panic is more socially acceptable than a kind of disciplined waiting. We all expect to be panicking about all kinds of things at the moment. And if you're not panicking, you're kind of frowned upon you. You should be panicking because the world is so terrifying. And to have a kind of hope-filled, disciplined waiting is actually a very different way of life from panicking about everything. And also we live in an instant society. We want everything now. It has to be ready now, straight away. Of course, that's actually a real sign of immaturity. It's, it's a way of life of... A small child who hasn't yet learnt any discipline. It's, I want it now. And we're not good, I think, in our society at disciplined waiting. I think that's one of the reasons why so often our society feels so hopeless. Because you can't have hope if you're not disciplined in waiting for something good. Now, Peter tackles this head on. He recognises the genuine hardships that these people, these believers in Jesus are experiencing, doesn't gloss over them. As we get into the letter, we'll see that. He deals with them head on. But he preaches not a panic 
and not a, it all needs to be sorted out now. He preaches a living hope, a hope that is eternal, a hope which isn't just instant flash in the pan, a, a hope which isn't just passing gratification, a hope that requires maturity, a hope that requires disciplined waiting. This hope is good news now, but it's not so good as it's going to be. That's what Peter says to these believers and to us. What the gospel promises is an eternal and glorious inheritance. And so Peter writes to them about this glorious good news, but it's not all going to be instant gratification. There's going to be some disciplined waiting required. And so Peter praises God for this new birth, which is guaranteed an inheritance for these believers. He says, we've got hope. We've got a hope that lives. Press into living hope. Why do we praise God? Why should we weep? Why should we applaud? Why should we clap? Because we have hope in Jesus Christ. Another reason why we praise God is just that we have reason to praise. We just do. John Calvin, church leader from the 16th century, said this. To focus on this, listen. It is the main object of this epistle, this letter of 1 Peter, to raise us above the world in order that we may be prepared and encouraged for the battle of our spiritual warfare. For this purpose, the knowledge of God's benefits is of great help. For when we appreciate their value, all other things will become worthless. And especially when we consider what Christ and his blessings are, everything without him will seem but dross. It is for this reason that Peter highly extols the wonderful grace of God in Christ, so that we may not think it hard to give up the world in order to enjoy the priceless treasure of future life, and also so that we may not be broken by our present troubles, but patiently endure them, being satisfied with eternal happiness. Further, when he gives thanks to God, he invites the faithful to spiritual joy, which swallows up all contrary feelings of the flesh. It's an amazing summary of this amazing passage and this amazing letter. What Calvin's saying there is that praise is an act of spiritual warfare. When we praise Jesus, we're putting our hope into action. This hope we have, we put it into action by praising God. When we praise God, it demonstrates our faith, it declares the truth that we have, and it conquers the doubts by which we are assailed. How do you conquer doubts? See this often in people's personal relationships. People meet, fall in love, think about forming life together, but very typically in our kind of cultural context, people have all kinds of anxieties and worries. How can I really be sure that I really love this person? How can I know this relationship will work? How can I be sure that I'll still love them in five years' time? How can I be sure that if we get married, it's going to work out, we won't end up just hating each other and getting divorced in a few years' time? How can I commit to a relationship? All those kind of anxieties which seem so common in our day. Now, the part of the problem is that we build insecurity into relationships if we constantly analyze them. When we're constantly kind of entertaining the doubts, the what-ifs and the buts and the maybes. The way to build security and certainty is just to throw yourself into wholehearted delight and praise. 
If you're thinking about getting married, you want to get married, the way to make your marriage work and the way to keep your marriage working for the long haul is just to give yourself to delight of the other person, to not entertain the doubts, but to praise them, to, in a sense, worship them. That's what you're called to in marriage. Now, the same thing happens in our relationship with God. There's all kinds of doubts that assail us. How are you going to maintain your relationship with God? How are you going to maintain joy in the Lord? How are you going to overcome those doubts that afflict us, that spiritual warfare, not by giving yourself to endless analysis, analysis and introspection, but by giving yourself to praise. So when we praise Jesus, it's an act of spiritual warfare. That's what causes the doubts to flee. Now, Peter writes to people who are under huge pressure to doubt the goodness of God. They're experiencing all kinds of hostility in the places where they live because of the faith that they have. They're not living up to the expectations of their society, the things their society expects of them in terms of how they're meant to behave culturally and religiously. And so they're under huge pressure to doubt the goodness of God. And the way to be victorious in that is not endless introspection and analysis. It's taking God at his word. It's believing what he's promised and giving him praise. It's what Peter does here. It's what he encourages the believers to do. It's what he encourages us to do. This week, I was reading in 2 Samuel 6. If you're doing community Bible reading, you would have done as well. The story about when King David brings the ark, the uh, box which represents the very presence of God, this sacred object, and brings it back to Jerusalem after it's been away, captured by enemies, and then restored to Israel. And David brings it up to Jerusalem, and that story describes how David abandons himself in praise before the Ark of the Covenant. He dances in uninhibited joy before the Ark of the Covenant. And at this time, David is facing all kinds of pressures, all kinds of challenges. He's got enemies surrounding him who want to kill him. He's got internal kind of political conflicts amongst his closest associates and companions and friends. His wife despises him. He's got marital problems, but he gives himself to uninhibited praise of God. He gives himself to praise, and the Lord sees us and blesses him. I was uh, at the gym this week, and uh, the coach for the session we were doing was late arriving, so there wasn't any music on. So we were uh, doing our warm-up, and the other guys were complaining about how hard it was to, to start doing the warm-up without any pounding music. And I said, just make music in your heart. <laughs> and for the rest of the session, they kept mocking me about making music in your heart. But for a Christian, that's just so natural. It's just... I didn't have the kind of uh, mental grid to, to know what I was saying. But as a Christian, there is a song in our hearts. Because God puts a song of praise in our hearts. We don't need it pumped out of a sound system. It's in our hearts. We have reason to praise. Third thing is that we have new birth. God reveals himself as Father because he's revealed himself through the Son, Jesus. And because God is revealed as Father through Jesus, he makes himself known to us as our Father, and new birth brings us into relationship with the Father. And it says here that new birth is given to us. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth. He gives it to us. 
There are things that we do in response, but the Father is the one who makes new birth possible. And this new birth is spiritual rebirth. It has many parallels with physical birth. It's like physical birth when a baby is born. That's exciting, and it's emotional, and it's messy, and it's wonderful. And this new birth which the Father brings us in enables us to know God as Father, bursts us into this hope that we have. And it happens through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See what this, let's read the whole verse. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What Peter's saying here is that Jesus' defeat of death, his victory over death, the fact that he died but didn't stay dead, the fact that the tomb is empty, Jesus' resurrection power is what enables us then to enter new life. We can come into new life. We come into this new birth. We're born again because Jesus has triumphed over death. We've entered life. That's what the Father gives to us. Now, how... Do you know if you're ready to receive this? It might be here this morning. You haven't yet had that experience. How do you know if you're ready to receive new life from God and come to that place where you can call God your Father? The easy way to think about it is A, B, C, D. It's when we admit, we admit our need of a Savior. It's when we admit our personal inability to save ourselves. It's when we admit that we need God. If you feel in your heart that stirring, I know I can't save myself. I know I need help. I know I need someone outside of me. I know I need God. If that stirs in your heart, well, that's the Father beginning to work in you. The next thing is to believe, to believe the claims of Jesus Christ, that Jesus alone is the way to God, that Jesus' death on the cross has dealt with our sin and separation from God, that Jesus, through Jesus we are enabled to enter this promise of eternal life and a great inheritance. If you feel belief in that stirring in you, that's the Father beginning to give you new life. The next thing is to consider what will it mean to follow Jesus. Following Jesus demands our total allegiance. If you say you're going to follow Jesus, it means that there are no no-go areas in your life. There's no part of your life where you say, Jesus, you can't come here. It means that he has authority over every area of your life, over all that you are, all that you think, all that you do. He claims it all. If you come to that place where you're saying, yeah, I'm willing to consider that and not reluctantly, but gladly trust God that he can have access to every area of my life. That's the Father beginning to stir new life in you. And then we need to do something. We need to come to God and ask him to forgive us and to accept us and to welcome us into his family. And when we ask him, he does. He will. He will give you new life. If you have that desire to ask God for new life, he will grant you new life. Becoming a Christian is so easy when the Father stirs this desire in our hearts. Now, is there anybody, anybody here this morning who feels that for the first time you want to do this? You want to admit, you want to believe, you want to consider, and you want to do. You want to ask the Father for new life. If there is, just stick your hand up quickly so I can see you. should be our expectation 
week by week that people are, we, those of us who are part of this church, we need to get better at bringing people along who don't yet know Jesus. It's in this place that people will respond. Fourth thing is that we have an inheritance. We have an inheritance. Do you ever receive an inheritance? It can be life-changing, I imagine. Now, Peter says that we Christians have been born again into an inheritance. We've been born again into an inheritance. Now, what is that inheritance? And Peter, Peter tells us what the inheritance isn't. It's, it doesn't perish. It's imperishable. This is an inheritance which is not subject to death or destruction. It's eternal. It doesn't run out. It's doesn't spoil, it's undefiled, can't be corrupted, can't be polluted, and it's unfading, doesn't fade with old age, doesn't wear out. Now this means that the inheritance that we receive in Christ is very different from getting something which enables you to pay off the mortgage or get a new kitchen. It's not that kind of category This inheritance which Peter talks about is something that we share with God himself. It's something actually we share in God himself. We share God somehow and all that he has. We share with God all the nations, all the universe, with all his people. This inheritance is sharing all that God is and all that he has for all time with all of God's people. That's very different from our earthly conceptions of inheritance. Now, getting our hands on this inheritance is a living hope that takes disciplined waiting. It means that we shouldn't put our hopes in the things that make life more comfortable now. And you know, it's so easy to do that. And I find this battle myself constantly, especially as I get older. It's easy to sink into the comforts of life and to put your hopes in those things. And what Peter reminds us here is not to put our hopes in the things which make life more comfortable now, but to put our hope in this internal, glorious inheritance. We need to anticipate with a disciplined waiting this eternal inheritance that is ours. And as we do that, that's going to affect our actions now. Think about what Calvin said again. The knowledge of God's benefits is of great help, for when we appreciate their value, all other things will become worthless. And especially when we consider what Christ and his blessings are, everything without him will seem but dross. Now, we need to get this in us. It's so, again, countercultural. It's so different from our materialistic, consumerist world so that to see that everything else is dross, everything else is rubbish compared with knowing and laying hold of Christ. But getting hold of this is the only way that we're going to be faithful in exile. The only way we're going to stay faithful as followers of Jesus in this world which is increasingly hostile towards the gospel is if we really know it in our heart of hearts, know it in our guts, that Jesus is worth having over and above everything else. Everything else without Jesus, no matter how good it is, without Jesus, it's dross. We have an inheritance. And then we have faith. Our inheritance is future, but we also 
lay hold of it now. We embrace it now through faith. Peter says, you who through faith are shielded by God's power. Faith lays hold of and applies all that is ours in Jesus Christ. And it does this even, actually especially, when we face difficulties. Christian faith enables us to endure through difficulties. A lot of this letter recognizes the hardships, the suffering that these believers are experiencing. That's because they're living as exiles. They're living as foreigners and aliens because of their faith in Jesus, and that's bringing them into many difficult situations. They're living as exiles. That means they're meant to be different, and we are called to live differently. St. Augustine, great church leader from the 4th century, said this, the wicked under pressure of affliction execrate, curse God and blaspheme. The good in the same affliction offer up prayers and praises. This shows that what matters is the nature of the sufferer, not the nature of the sufferings. Stir a cesspit and a foul stench arises. Stir a perfume and a delightful fragrance ascends, but the movement is identical. What's getting stirred up in our lives when we face hardships? Is it poo that's getting stirred up or perfume? What smell arises? This is why Peter says that their faith is of greater worth than gold. Gold is proved when it's tested, when it's refined, and our faith is proved genuine when it's tested. And the faith of these believers is being tested through their experience of hostility in the world around them because of the faith that they've chosen. Now, in our context at the moment here in the UK, we, as Christians, we don't experience persecution. Sometimes uh, Christians here in the UK and in the West talk somewhat glibly and foolishly, I think, about us experiencing persecution. We don't experience persecution in the UK as Christians. We have extraordinary freedoms and liberties, but we are probably experiencing greater kind of cultural hostility. There's not a respect for Christianity in the way that there once was, and there can be an increasing ridicule, and things actually can become a little bit more difficult, a bit more uncomfortable, a bit more alien for us in our culture. It's hostility, it's not persecution. This week I was away with a group of pastors, and a friend of mine who leads a church in Birmingham was describing how he's got somebody in his church at the moment who comes from Pakistan and had to flee Pakistan because he's a Christian and uh, he'd led an imam to faith in Jesus. And that imam, when he'd become a Christian, had actually been murdered as a consequence and this man's house had been attacked. And so he'd had to flee to the UK for a time. That's persecution. We're not experiencing that. But still we can come under pressure. And when we come under pressure, when we get stirred, what is it that arises? Is it a stink? Or is it a perfume? Now, our faith produces praise to Jesus. And when our faith is tested and proved genuine, praise arises to Jesus. And it also produces joy in us. And this isn't any old joy. Peter says here, though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of 
your souls. Peter says there's a joy here which is beyond description. There's a beyond description joy that is ours through the faith that we have in Christ. The life of faith, the life of the Christian is a mixture of celebration and sorrow and inexpressible joyful certainty. And this year, as we think about this theme of faithful, being faithful, we need to be those who press into this, celebrating all that is good, sorrowing over the things which are hard, and experiencing an inexpressible, joyful certainty in all that God has for us. We have faith. And the last thing is that we have something that prophets have searched for and angels want to see. Let me read another couple of verses. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. We have something the prophets search for and angels want to see. The prophets are those people uh, described in the Bible in the Old Testament who sought after God and spoke his Word. Jesus says something very similar in Matthew 13. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. The prophets, all those writings which make up the bulk of our Bibles, they were searching after, looking for what God was going to do through his Messiah, through Jesus. They searched for it, but they did not see it. We have now seen with clarity what they saw in part because Jesus has been revealed to us. We have something that the prophets search for. And we have something which the angels want to look into. The angels long to look into these things. We have a treasure in the gospel that angels long to understand. And we could pause here and do a whole seminar on angels. haven't got time for that, but this is an amazing phrase. Even angels long to look into these things. The angels are astounded by what they see God doing amongst us. Now think about this morning, Gateway Church, this little group of us sitting here this morning on our new chairs. Hope you're enjoying those. We gave the old ones to God First Church in Christ Church. You've got a new building and couldn't afford new chairs, so bless them. Think about us, this little group of people here. The angels are longing to look in and understand all that God is doing amongst us. We might think, oh, I'd love to see an angel. It'd be amazing to see an angel. Actually, the angels are longing to look in and understand what God's doing here. They can't grasp it fully because they haven't experienced what we've experienced. They haven't experienced salvation in the way that we've experienced salvation. They haven't experienced the adoption of sonship in the way that we do. They don't know what it is to be part of God's family in the way that we are. And so they look on astounded by what they see, astounded that God saves people like you and me, astounded at the grace we have received in Christ Jesus, amazed at the way the Holy Spirit has been sent from heaven for us. Even angels long to look into these things. And so we should be happy 
And we should clap and applaud because we have hope in God and we have reason to praise him and we have new birth and we have an inheritance and we have faith and we have something the prophets search for and that the angels long to see. Wow, what an amazing gospel. Let's stand and let's praise him together. Let's stand and applaud our king. Let's give him praise. Yes, Lord. We praise you, Lord. Yes, we do. We applaud you, Jesus, for the wonder of the gospel, for its power, its might, its wonder, such grace to us. Thank you. We've got something that even angels are amazed by and long to look into. I pray that we would be those who celebrate. I pray that we would be those who have this inexpressible joy, even in the face of difficulties, King Jesus. I pray when we're put under pressure, I pray what arises from us will be a perfume of praise to you. And we would celebrate. Lord, we'd be disciplined in our waiting. and It would be joyful in our hope now. Thank you that we've got something which lives. I pray as we come back into worship now, we'd know that life, that life which you've given us. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for new birth. Thank you, Lord God, we can call you Father. Thank you for all we have in the gospel. So rich, so deep, more precious than gold. We bless you, Lord, and we praise your name. Hallelujah. Let's praise him.